1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're turning this morning, and verse 10 is where our study takes us. And looking at a, a problem that is in the church in Corinth. Now we know, because you've read 1 Corinthians before, and there are lots of problems, a lot of confusion, a lot of issues in the church at Corinth. Good grief. Uh, a lot of things that we can learn from. It's good to learn from other people's mistakes and be original, make your own mistakes, but to learn from the issues that are going on and being corrected by the by the Apostle Paul, who was the founding apostle, the one who brought the gospel, uh, at least in an apostolic fashion. Perhaps the gospel had penetrated because Corinth is... Cor There's a town just down the road called Corinth, and I try to... Sometimes I get confused with pronunciation to use. So uh, that city was a tremendous city in the life of the first century world and the third most populated city in the Roman Empire. Very much travel back and forth, commerce, trade, language, people just all over. And so... Most likely, the gospel had come to the to the city, but Paul is the one who really established it first in the synagogue, and then as he led on, he continued his ministry in the church in Corinth. I wanted to give you a little bit of an outline. In fact, if you got a, a bulletin this morning, there was an insert with a an outline in it. There's some more on the back table. If you didn't get one, we'll just look at the first little bits. We've looked at the salutation, the, the uh, opening a little bit, identifying the author, identifying the recipients of the letter, and just a greeting that he gives to them. And then, as Paul's custom is, to give a wonderful thanksgiving uh, to God for the work of grace that he sees, even from a distance now. He's, he's not in Corinth when he writes this letter. But having uh, a perspective, having some reports, having some even a correspondence with them, he's just thankful and he gives thanks. He understands their issues. He's going to get to those in just a moment. But he, he just gives thanks for the reality of God's grace in the life of the church. And he says, my hope is in God. My confidence is in him. And you all just need to obey, humble yourselves and obey and do what God wants you to do. I'm thankful and I put put great hope. Like he says in verse 9, God is faithful. And man, if that didn't give us comfort, because when you look at each other, hmm, we want to be faithful. We're required to be faithful. We'll see that in, in uh, chapter 4. Uh, it's required of a steward to be found faithful. But man, we just, we need the Lord every day. And he says, he puts his hope in God. God is faithful through whom you were also called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So having that basis, now he's willing and and it's needful to launch into some some gentle reproof and correction of this church in Corinth. And a lot of this comes, at least these first two issues, come from a report that he received. We'll read it here uh, in verse 11, I think, or 10. 11, it says, uh, from Chloe's people. Two reported problems that came to him as he's in Ephesus, most likely uh, separated from Corinth from some by some distance. But two issues, we're going to begin looking at the first one this morning, and that is the issue of divisions in the church. Now, we shouldn't have divisions. We should all be the same. We should we not dressing the same and talking the same, but we should all think the most important aspect of our life is not how we dress or how we talk or how we spend our money. or our, But what do we think about God? What do we think about doctrine? What do we think about the truth of God's word? And even the ministers, the the preachers, the apostles in this context, those who are sent to the, to work in these churches, how do we relate to them? How do we think about them? And should we have kind of a, a party spirit, more devoted to them, or or even saying, well, I don't have anything to do with them. I'm just of Christ himself. All kind of reasons that division can happen in a local church. And so Paul addresses that first off. 
he, then he goes into immorality in the church. We know this from chapters 5 and 6. And, and uh, on it goes, we're not going to identify the other things that he responds to later throughout the rest of the, of the letter. But these first two are issues that he has heard by the report of uh, Chloe's people there in verse 11. So let me read this text for us, beginning at verse 10 through verse 17, and then we'll look at it a little bit more carefully here. He says, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. I mean this, that each one of you says, or is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you or no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel and wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. Lots of things going on in this text, but he does what he normally does. He exhorts or he encourages this word we've, we might be familiar with in, in the Greek word, might be familiar in uh, English. It's the word parakaleo. We get the word paraclete, the encourager, the comforter. Um, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement, that kind of thing. The, the encouragement can have a little bit more uh, oomph to it, you know, a little bit more emphasis. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's not commanding. Now, he could command, right? He's just, he is exhorting, he is calling the, this uh, church forward in, uh, his, uh, in his apostolic authority to do these things. What is interesting is that he heard this report. This is about 50, early 50s uh, of the first century. Within the next 40 years, about 40 years later, a man named Clement, Clement of Rome, um, supposedly third in line after after Peter as the Pope of, of the church in Rome, but he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in, in about AD, AD 95. So AD, I could do the letters, but I didn't do that, sorry. AD 95 wrote about this very thing, these, this division going on in the church at Corinth. 40 years later, he says, I know there are a lot of good things going on in your church, but he wrote to address, this is a quote from Clement, that shameful and detestable sedition utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pitch of frenzy that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury. And he refers to this part of Paul's letter from about 40 years earlier in this in his letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, Clement says, take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties had been formed among you. So Paul says, look, I know that this issue is going on. I'm exhorting you, brothers. And notice how he, he, he underscores that idea of brothers. He's going to repeat it several times throughout this letter. But he says, we're brothers in Christ. But act like it, guys. What are you doing having all this division going on? Brothers, I'm calling you, just as the Lord called me to be an apostle, just as the Lord called you to be saints, just as he called you into fellowship with his son. Brothers, act like it. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't just a, you know, a, a wish list or, a, you know, I'd prefer this. This is, this is apostolic authority, as some people have described it, a, a velvet-covered brick. Okay? It, it's presented 
gently and kindly, all the grace that Paul can muster, but there is a, a weight to it. And he comes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just, you know, if you say Jesus Christ's name, that, that you'll, you know, have roses and whatever. No, it, it's coming in the authority, coming in the character, coming in the the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Paul's an apostle. He says, I'm coming to you, and I'm, I'm entreating you. Look, there are issues. He says, I'm calling you that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. He, he kind of says it three different ways, two times positively and, and one time negatively. And he says, you all agree, that you all say the same thing. This idea of the brothers, that they would have the same character, that they would have the same emphasis. In fact, three different times in this the single verse of verse 10, he has this word, um, it's translated differently here, let's see, uh, that you all agree, which is another way of saying, say the same thing, and then at the end of this verse it says that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. So that idea of same or agree is, uh, is the same basic uh, language that he uses three times in here. And you think, well, good grief, Paul, can't, are you saying we need to be cop- carbon copy, that we need to just be exactly alike, and, and how far does that go? I mean, there, there are a lot of different uh, things that we could be unified on, like socioeconomic things or, or government affiliations or a common language. I've been in churches where, okay, maybe the preachers preach in this language, but then over here they're translating into Spanish, and over here they're translating into another language, maybe some Russian over here, and the guy himself who's preaching translates himself. He speaks maybe in, in the exact situation was preaching in English, but then translating himself into Hebrew, and then back and forth. Wow. So we even a common language isn't so necessary that we say the same thing, same words. Maybe there are different education paths. I'm just thinking in our present world. Uh, marital status. No, we need, this is just a married-only church, right? You have to be married to be part of the church. No, you can't. No, there's nothing like that. Or you have to follow this you know, protocol of parenting style. That's not that. Or maybe you need to be, you know, you need to be debt-free. And well, that would, that's wise, but it's not necessary to be part of this church. There are any number of things that we can say, that's the rallying cry. That's the or- organizing reality. And Paul says, no, that's not what I'm saying. I want you all to agree, and he's going to get into it. What does he mean specifically? But to say the same thing about these things. There are allowances for liberty. He's going to get to that in chapter 12. Well, excuse me, chapters 8 through 10. He's going to talk about the liberty of conscience and you know, food sacrifice to idols and so forth. He's going to po- talk about the diversity or variety of gifts and ministries and effects in uh, chapter 12, the spiritual gifts. So there's diversity, but having the same marching orders, uh, you know, marching to the same uh, beat of the drum, he is saying, and what is that, what is that drum? How do, we, how do we know? We should strive for unity as a local church, just as the Corinthian church did. But what does that look like? And whose who's unity do we pursue? Is it, is it this unity or that unity? Somebody says this is what we ought to do or think. Thankfully, again, the Lord has given to us plentiful resources to know what kind of same or uh, it's translated uh, differently in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter is writing to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. Peter says that, Interestingly, because that word, maybe it's translated differently in your translation. I think the King James says, a like precious faith. Is that right? A like precious faith. What, what's going on, that word is different than what he uses here. It has the idea of having an equal. So you think of the word um, isometric or isosceles. An isosceles triangle has two legs that are the same length. Or isometric means it's equal, equal uh, 
equal thing. He says this is an equality of value, of worth. You have a uh, equally worthy faith that we want to emulate and share with one another. Jude also references this when he talks about his common salvation that he wanted to write concerning. So he says this is important. This is a key idea that we're not just, you know, what should we believe today? We're not just saying we, we don't know what, what we should be. There's a little bit of doubt in there when there's some uncertainty and the scripture is hard to understand, which Paul, Peter says of Paul in chapter 3 of Second Peter, and you know, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unlearned distort to their own destruction. So we shouldn't distort those things and emphasize the disagreements. We should say, what is the prevailing testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and how do we how do we apply it? How do we put these verses together? Because this, this says here, and that says there, and that author says this, and this author, they are presenting a combined and unified message from God. And the way that we approach it really depends on, if you don't mind getting into the weeds a little bit, hermeneutics. And what? Herman who? There's a book with that title. Uh, but hermeneutics is the science and art of studying Scripture, interpreting Scripture. And it really boils down to three categories of thought. The first idea is, what does it say? So we observe, right? What does it mean? So we interpret. And then what is it? Or, or how, do, how does it apply to me? So application. So observation, interpretation, application. And sometimes we skip over the observation part, and sometimes we skip over the interpretation part even, and we just jump to application. We were just talking about this yesterday, I think. You know, the scripture that says, go and do likewise. Well, you know who said that and what the context was. I often say, uh, you know, do what, what you must do, do quickly. That's Jesus' word to Judas, right? We want to be careful about that. Interpreting comes after observation. Who's talking here? What are they saying? What are the words being used? It comes back to the hermeneutics, the principles of interpreting Scripture, interpreting and reading it with a, if you don't mind, an historical, grammatical understanding. What it says is, is pretty evident. Now, there are different genres of, of language. We have prophecy. We have poetry. We have wisdom. We have all these different things. But how do we approach Scripture? And how do we receive our marching orders from that? Paul is saying that we should all agree. And he says it in other places as well. In fact, it's, it's said of the early church, Acts 2, that they had the same mind. They, they were in, had the same, uh, the word there is with one accord. Now, he's not talking about cars. There's a joke about, you know, how do they all fit in one accord and all whatever. No, it, it's having the same intense desire. In fact, usually this word, part of the word has to do with uh, anger, kind of a, an over, right, overarching uh, passion to do something. And he says they had the same burden or, or passion or just the fire in their, in their bellies to do this one thing, and that was to have fellowship and to be committed to the apostles' teaching and the breaking bread into prayer. And they were so intent on that thing from the earliest time of the church. He says even, this is uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, wouldn't you like to have your name listed in Scripture? It would be wonderful. What about these two women's names that are here? I urge Yodia and Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Because there were issues between, they were ladies who were at odds with each other. And Paul says, ladies, settle down. You ought to think the same thing. 
He's not saying which one was right, by the way. He's saying who is right, God is right. You both make sure you're on God's side. Don't be so you know, antagonistic toward one another. So it's a very, very similar thing in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. The point is, this isn't just an unusual thing or a unique situation that Paul expects of the Corinthian church. He expects all the churches, all the believers, to be intent on the same purpose, to have the same mind in, in mind, the same, um, same thinking going on, but also the same evaluation. He's going to use that at the end of this, end of this verse. Uh, same discernment uh, issue going on. But he says, you need to agree. You need to speak the same thing. All of you, not just most of you, all of you need to toe the line. And it's not, well, what does the preacher say? Well, we just want to pre with, agree with the preacher or, you know, the different books we have on our in our library shelves. We just want to pre with, agree with them. No, we want to agree with this book, the scriptures, the holy scriptures. And to the best of our ability, argue, not argue, but but defend our doctrine based on the book. What does the scripture say? Saying the same thing. Because if, we're, if, if there's some disagreements there, there's going to be divisions. There's going to be problems in the congregation. There are going to be issues. Uh, this idea of divisions or quarrels, maybe you, it's translated, has the idea of, of something that is torn something that is separated that shouldn't be separated. This is it's supposed to be intact. So in fact, that's why the uh, Roman soldiers did not tear or did not distribute uh, our Lord's garment, outer garment, because it was such a nice fabric. They said, let's let's not tear it. Let's give it to somebody whole, whole hog, if you don't mind to use some pretty non-kosher language. But they're Romans, after all. And so they, they gave it to him intact. But the idea of tearing dividing or, or separating uh, is is what's at heart here because you are one body you are based on you're, you're saved by one lord you're called to him called into fellowship with with jesus christ the son of god and so what are you doing tearing yourself away or tearing yourself and then discarding the other part because you you don't want anything to do with that other uh, nature of of a person this idea of divisions and there's some some discussion over this whole thing about how developed certainly was by clement's time we read that right 40 years later boy sedition which is open rebellion against the rulers the leaders the shepherds of the church in corinth but how developed was this division or quarreling at this point in any we 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 see some measure of it here but we can understand that that a division can even just be a preliminary basis for a separation of fellowship uh, there are different groups that think a certain way, and this other group thinks a different way over here. Uh, we see this a couple, three different times in John's gospel. A division, same word that we see here, something that's torn, something that there's a difference between these two groups. John 7, verses, uh, verse 43 says, A division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. Some were wanting to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. This is our Lord Jesus. Some people wanted to... Uh, Right, kill him, but nobody was able to do it. Again, in John 9, verse 16, he says there where there was a division among them because some were saying this and some were saying that. And so there was a division. John 10, and verse 19 says another division occurred among the Jews because of what Jesus said. So a difference of opinion, different of difference of appreciation. And Paul says there shouldn't be that. There shouldn't be that toward Christ. There should not be that toward the work of his apostles. There should not be that toward even the message of the gospel which we'll get into, Lord willing, next time about the, the power of the, of the gospel uh, as the message of the cross. And so he says, look, don't be divided. Think the same thing and let there be no, not just like you know, the number of divisions in your church is too much. You have a quota, you've, you've maximized or ex, ex, 
exceeded your quota, and so now you're in trouble. No, he says, don't let any division do your best to live unified with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, I should back up. When he says brothers, maybe some of your translations say brothers and sisters or family or whichever, siblings may be very generic. He is referring, even in that masculine term, women are included as well. How do we know that? Because he talks to women in chapter 7. He talks about women to women in chapter 11 also. So it's not like he's just saying, this is for the men only and women, you got to get your truth from, from your husband kind of thing. You know, he, he's appealing to every person, even boys and girls. Remember how he, he talks, not in this letter so much, but in Ephesians and Colossians, children which are in the congregation, you obey your parents. And Paul is speaking to them as this letter is being read aloud. So anyway, brothers includes uh, everybody in the church, which means in this regard, Women, don't you be having divisions among you? Men, don't be doing that either. Kids, you do your best to live at peace with each other. You don't get into a party kind of spirit. We want unity in so many different ways. He says here at the end of verse 10, again, positively, he said at first positively, then negatively, no divisions. And here in verse 10, that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. Be made complete, this idea is something that is repaired or fixed has the idea of a lot of times at least in the gospels it's used to talk about how the the uh, fisher guys fishermen repaired their nets they mended their nets they made them complete and able to be used again for the next uh, time they went out it talks about something that is prepared for in advance for something it is something that is made uh, adequate or sufficient for work so that he says here that you may be complete, that you may be prepared for every good work, but you do it by thinking the same thing, having the same mind and the same judgment. This idea of mind has to do with uh, not just the, the process of thinking, the, the thinking you know, protocol, but the disposition or opinions that we have, the attitude of our mind, even the same kind of word is used in Philippians 2 and verse 5, have this mind in you, have this attitude or, or demeanor of life, outlook on life, have, that, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe the humility that our Lord endured, entered into willingly, and then therefore his exaltation after his death on the cross. And we should have that mind in us as well to be humble and think of other people as more important than ourselves. A mindset, maybe you want to think of it that way, it is uh, an orientation toward life. And he says, you don't have the same orientation toward life. You know, some people can be, be more pessimistic, some people optimistic. We should all be optimistic. We go in, in the power of God and with his message. I mean, hateful by the world, but that's the only message that we need to give. We don't need to give a, whatever, but the gospel, the Christ, forgiveness of sin, the substitutionary atonement, that's what we pronounce and proclaim. He says, have the same judgment here. This goes a little bit farther than just an opinion or a mindset or a disposition of mind. This has to do with how do you intend to live your life? What purposes do you have? What, what, how have you rationally come to a conclusion, this is what we're going to do? This is where we're after. And boy, that's you know where the rubber meets the road. You know, certain people says we ought to do it this way, and certain people say we oh we ought to do it this way. And then you have this other group. And as much as we can, we need to be intent on the same purpose or here judgment, have the same opinion about these things. And even that we are willing to lay down our own personal uh, 
preferences or prerogatives to advance the common good. In fact, he's going to say, return to that idea in chapter 12 that we use, we have been given a manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. Use it to advance the church, advance the Bible, the body. We should have the same judgment. Now, now he gets into, which is not gossip. Verse 11, it's not gossip for an important reason. I'll get into two important reasons. Uh, he says in verse 11, I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are, in fact, if you don't mind, quarrels among you. So this idea of I've been informed, you've been told on. You know, this is not a tattletale issue. I've been informed concerning you, my brothers. Here's again that family relationship, that calling him, hey, you guys, you're better than this. You act differently. because You're not worldly anymore. But he's going to get into that, talking about fleshly, you know, carnal Christians. He says, you're different than that. You you act like it, guys and, and ladies. He says, I've been informed. It came to my attention, uh, certain things about what's going on in the church in Corinth. Now, Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half, right? Ministering the gospel and establishing the church and raising up leaders and, and just doing all those things. But he left. He was doing, you know, he's an itinerant minister. He goes around different things. Uh, second longest time he'd been in any place, well, other than prison, but because uh, he was three years in Ephesus, right? A year and a half in Corinth. And now he says, I've been told something has come to my attention. And he even names who it was who told him, which this is the only time Chloe's name is mentioned here. So we really don't know. Was she somebody from Corinth? Is she somebody from Ephesus, where probably Paul was at the time, writing back to the church in Corinth? Uh, why is she named? And it says by, by Chloe's people. It literally says of, of th those people of Chloe. Well, is Chloe a businesswoman? Is this talking about household people, which could include a business? Is it talking about her, her children? Is it talking about maybe some slaves that she has, maybe some freedmen working for her? If she's in the business trade, well, certainly between Ephesus and Corinth, a lot of travel, a lot of trade would be going forth, a lot of communication, a lot of interaction they would have back and forth. So the news travels fast. There are many things we don't know about this whole situation. What is interesting is it's a lady's name. Why not Chloe's husband's name listed here? Well, it's very similar to what we would read in Acts 16 about Lydia and her household. Lydia is the leader of her household, and she is a seller of purple fabric. She's she's a businesswoman there in in uh, in Philippi and in uh, Macedonia, Greece, northern Greece there, and she's listed. No husband is listed. Children, all these things, and even the salvation that comes to her and her household, and it's just tremendous. Acts sixteen, you can read about it. But her name is listed similarly to how Chloe's name is listed here, and he says those people. Chloe, whoever she is, whether she's even a Christian, we don't, we just don't know about this. But somehow the word came back to Paul. And again, the reason that this is not gossip is because, if you don't mind, gossip is involving people with some situation, part of the problem or the solution. Gossip is involving people who are not part of the problem or the solution. Paul, especially as he goes on here, is part of the problem because there are, there are some party spirits, party factions that are saying, I'm of Paul, and other people say, I'm not of Paul, I'm of these people. And he says, so he's part of the problem, not because he caused the problem, but he is involved in it because of the very nature of his apostolic credentials and, and work there in Corinth. But he's also part of the solution, because he's an apostle, because he has a special relationship to that church particularly, but also just as an apostle of Christ, he needs to know these things. And that, if you don't mind, one of these other things comes into play, and that is confidentiality. Shouldn't Chloe have kept that silent? Shouldn't she have gone to confront the church? Well, at this point, it's become a notorious thing. It's a public thing. Paul had to be told about it because he's, you know, 
distant from the congregation, but it, it's known. And even by the time of, of Clement, 40 years later, it is notorious and it is tearing apart the testimony of the Corinthian church and the whole society, not just around Corinth, but the whole Roman Empire hears about this, these horrible things going on in the church in Corinth. And so these, are, these things are going on. Confidentiality, let me just finish that thought. Confidentiality means, yeah, I'll keep it secret or quiet just between the two of us unless somebody needs to know about it. And think, well, that's not confidentiality. Look, if you can't appreciate that, then don't tell me. And you think, well, but you're, if somebody needs to know about this, then I'm going to involve them. We see this even in relation to Matthew 18. If there's an issue between two people, if they can solve it, wonderful. Confidentiality, nobody else needs to know about it. But if there's an issue that can't be solved between the two of them, and other people need to come in and help, then confidentiality expands. We don't just proclaim it to the world. We're going to expand it just a little bit. In other words, the the circle of knowledge is is as small as it needs to be to accomplish salvation, sanctification, redemption, reconciliation, all these things. So if other people need to know, then other people need to know. And that's what Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church. And again, who wants to have their name written in Scripture that people 2,000 years later are reading? Euodia and Syntyche. How about Chloe's people tattletaling, but not they're speaking the truth, speaking out of concern for this Corinthian church to Paul. And now we, 2,000 years later, are reading about these issues in the Corinthian church. Man, if, if we had an apostle writing about the history of this church, what kind of issues would they identify? And, and inspired, you know, inspired writing the scriptures for our church. Man, may God be honored in these things. But it's a humbling reality to consider this. And he says, look, I've heard that there are quarrels. Same idea of, of divisions, but this has more to do with verbal jousting or conflicts that they had. Not so much coming to blows quite yet, not you know striking each other, but it does have to do with something that is not in the nature of Christians to do. Anytime we see this word quarrels, well, a lot of times we see this word quarrels, it's in the context of what are called vice lists. Vice lists, as opposed to virtues, we have vices. And so many times we see quarreling is a work of the flesh. It's a work not of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. Strife, we see in the context of Romans chapter 1, verse 29, is it? 20, yeah, 29. Filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife. There's our word. Deceit, malice, they're gossips. We see it again in chapter 13, verse 13. We see it again in Galatians 5, in relation to the fruit of the, of the or excuse me, the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Strife is one of the works of the flesh, along with enmities and jealousy and outbursts of anger. It's not a good thing. But Paul says, I've heard that there are quarrels. I've heard that there are fleshly things going on in this church of God. How can this be? Brothers, this should not be in this congregation. This strife or this, this having, uh, it's okay to have differences of opinion, but then making, putting them on, uh, a pedestal and saying, this is my opinion and you have a different opinion, so we really can't fellowship with each other. I, I just can't can't stand this. I, I, this. This is not what I signed up for. This, this is not good. And you argue and quarrel about it. There's, there's strife and discord. Let me say this about something too. When we, we have as part of our church identity uh, two different statements of faith. One is uh, standards of Christian faith and conduct. We also have a uh, a fuller doctrinal statement. You think, yeah, it's fuller. Good grief. It's half of our bylaws as a doctrinal statement. Well, we have boiled that doctrinal statement down to what we believe are the, the essentials, 
that any Christian ought to be able to agree to. And then we say in our statement of faith, this is what we're going to teach. So when people come, maybe outsiders, visitors, or even in the congregation, they know what they're going to hear. It's going to hear, be from the Bible. It's going to be in, in the line of this doctrinal uh, flavor. Uh, and, and you can expect teachers will be consistent to that thing. Why is that important? Because we don't want to have divisions. We don't have to have, want to have quarrels over uh, interpretation of Scripture, over the understanding that we have, even over the application of Scripture. We want to be as united and intent on the same purpose as we can, even as teachers being held to a uh, stricter judgment like James 3 says, we want to be careful about these things because we don't want to give any uh, room in the best of our abilities for, for the possibility of divisions or quarreling or, or whatever. It's not to say that we shouldn't can't have differences of opinion on certain doctrines, but what we regard as essential doctrine, which is that, well, who decides what that is? It's another conversation, but... How are we to know what is, is something that we should, you know, toe the line, make sure that we all agree to these things in these important things that would otherwise tend toward quarreling that, that really rises up the, the feelings of animosity and, and suspicion about, you know, he, he says that, how does he, re- does he even read his Bible? You know, that kind of thing. We want to be careful to affirm uh, what God has, has spoken in his word, not to give quarter to quarrels or strife or these things. He says the example, he's, this is the example he gives, that he's heard from uh, the from Chloe's people, verse 12, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm a Cephas, I'm of Christ. You think, what is going on here? This is an example, as we'll see, repeated, even though sometimes it's hard to discern what if, if something falls in this category. These are slogans or uh, bywords or just repeated phrases in the life of the church at Corinth, and certain people are actually using the words, I am of Paul. And certain other people are saying, I'm of Apollos, and so on. We'll see this later. For example, maybe it's a slogan that the people use, um, all things are lawful, right? We're going to see that in chapter 9, I think it is. All things are lawful, but Paul says, not all things are profitable. So he's countering that slogan, that kind of byword, that that phrase by the Corinthian church, and says, mm, not all things are profitable. So just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And he, go, he addresses that in, in certain other respects here. But he has four different examples of what these Corinthian believers are saying, and it's not good, because it leads to quarrels, it leads to divisions, it leads to tearing of this fabric of the Christian body there in Corinth apart. And he says, that's not right. And notice, he says, what do I mean by divisions? I mean this that each one of you, and I thought, well, he doesn't mean each one of them. I mean, certainly there are some people who aren't party or, or divisive. Over no, pretty much any time that, that he says each one of you, he really means each one. Every single one of you in the church has an orientation, an affiliation, a statement of, of fealty or devotion, and there's not one of you that has remained unified, being intent on the same purpose, having that same mind. You guys are all splitting off into different directions. It's not good. It's not healthy. It is horrible. And he says, and he starts with himself, because why not? Not that he's being heady. He's just saying, I'm part of the problem. I don't want to be. I didn't intend to be. But some of you guys are saying, I'm of Paul. And by, again, there's a question of how advanced, how developed are these different parties? Are they, you know, they have committee meetings? Do they have a secretary to keep notes on their meeting? Who knows what it is? But at least there is some measure of difference or some measure of disagreement between them. And Paul says, some people are saying that they have become attached to me, of all people. Now, 
he does acknowledge he is the apostle and he's going to affirm that uh, in chapter four and elsewhere about his role as an apostle, you know, uh, in, inaugural church planter in Corinth. But he says, who am I? Even Apollos, he says, we're just stewards. We're servants of God. You don't give undue attention to us. But this idea of saying, I am of any of these people, is this idea of association. It is the idea of, um, again, devotion to that person, that they're an adherent of this uh, particular approach or, or uh, doctrine or whatever it is. And so they're really, again, the, the, the basis for lots of division in the church going on here. And so Paul says, some people say, on the one hand, I'm of Paul. On the other hand, some other people say, I'm of Apollos. And Paul says, look, as it relates to him, he's going to say, I haven't been crucified for you. You are baptized in my name, and I haven't baptized except for a handful of people. And there should be no undue association or identification with me as a person. Now, me as an apostle, fine. I'll go to the, I'll go to the grave with that, um, uh, you know, fight to the death for that, my role as an apostle. But in terms of me personally, who am I? Just a servant. Just, an, just a, a steward of the manifold grace of God given to me. Don't give me any undue attention. What could be happening here is because Apollos, you could go back to Acts 18 and realize this guy, Apollos, the three major cities in the first world, Roman Empire, Rome, of course, Alexandria was the second in Egypt, and then Corinth was the, the third most important, influential, popular, populated city in the Roman Empire, first century. Apollos was from Alexandria, home of uh, Philo, historian, philosopher, uh, very, very famous, very learned, very, in fact, it's said about Apollos in Acts 18, that he is an eloquent man. He is a learned man. That he has certain, uh, he, he, in fact, he doesn't do, uh, he, he just speaks just, he's wonderful, a clear speaker, magnificent, fantastic. Where does he look at Paul? And Paul, he's got issues. I mean, he's just slight. He's some different character, I forget who it was that described him his physicality. He's kind of hunched over, has a little bit of a crooked nose. I mean, he was, he'd gone through the ringer a bunch of different times. Stoned, you know, shipwrecked, all these different things. So he he's a slight person. And even that's going to come into play, I think it's mostly in Second Corinthians, that how is it that Paul, when he writes, is so powerful, but when he's with us, he's just this meek little fella. How can that be? And so they're, they're making this contrast between Paul and Apollos, a polished if you don't mind, a polished speaker and a man of wisdom and letters. He is a learned man. And so, yeah, okay, so there's a distinction there. And so some people, because it's Corinth, because they had the this uh, high estimation of wisdom and, and valuing that, they thought, well, we're gonna we're gonna attach ourselves to Apollos because he's 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 the man. When some people said, No, I'm of Cephas. And they what the, who is this Cephas fella? Kepha is, is the word, and you might know it because it's a, the Aramaic equivalent of the Greek Peter, which is also Latin. In fact, you think, how is that Latin? Peter means rock, right? Matthew 18 makes, or Matthew uh, 16 makes that point. And think of petroleum, right? Oil, rocky oil, oil from the rock, petroleum. Uh, or think of petrify, if somebody would be petrified, it's be turned into rock. But here is this Aramaic term for, for Peter. And he says, I am, certain people say, I am of Cephas or Kepha. And we think there's no record, at least in scripture, of Peter ever going to Corinth. Now, it could be understandable because it is such a central city for travel, because you don't have to go around that southern tip of the uh, Peloponnese, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, the southern part of Greece, very treacherous, 
horrific uh, travel down there. So yeah, why don't you pass over through Corinth, especially because Peter ends up in Rome at some point. But again, we don't have any record of it. Is it perhaps that some people say, I don't like Paul, and Apollos who came after Paul's ministry, read that in Acts 18, in first verse of chapter 19, when Paul leaves Corinth, Apollos goes over to Corinth. And so there's that kind of transition. And they say, I don't like either of those founding kind of teachers. I'm going to go for Peter because he's he's Peter, right? And it could be, and some people make uh, the deal of this, that Peter, at this point anyway, depending on how you date the writing of Galatians, uh, either before or after 1 Corinthians, he had some issues. He still wasn't quite sure about this whole legalism thing and the works of the law and so forth. And and uh, there was some confusion. You can read about that at the end of chapter 2 of Galatians. And so maybe these people were, because it wasn't a, a very big, um, well, there were, there were Jewish influences in Corinth just because of the nature of the city, the, its identity and so forth. But how much was the the synagogue active. There was a synagogue there in Corinth. That's where Paul started his ministry. But it could be that those who attached themselves to Peter said, we want to we want to become Jews. We want to obey this law. I mean, that's life, right? To, to have these different dietary things and the festivals. This is so wonderful. And they want rules and regulations. It could be. I don't know. You're kind of making things up. But having this attachment to, to Cephas could lead to that kind of an affinity toward legalism. Peter had to be confronted by Paul. Again, read there in, uh, in, in Galatians chapter 2. So there could be that going on. I don't want Paul. I don't want to pause. I'm going to go after Peter. But then there are those who say, I don't want any of those guys. I'm of Christ. And they would present themselves as the true believers. They are the ones who, who I, we don't need anybody else. We don't need these apostles. We don't need these ministers out here. We, are, we have this relationship with Christ, and that is sufficient. Now, in one sense, yes, absolutely, Christ is sufficient. All of Christ, and that's who we want. We want to love him more and more. But that's not what is going after here, because Paul is, is finding fault with him. They were making that claim something that divided instead of united. Christ is not something to be, and he says it in the next verse, Christ is not divided between these different groups. Christ is calling us toward unity and and uh, brotherhood in the church, and so these people, you know, played the spiritual high card, high ground. They're two different idioms. Go ahead and choose which one you want. But they were they were the ones who were just becoming proud and arrogant, looking down upon those. Oh, you you're of Paul. I pity you. Oh, Cephas, Apollos. No, Christ is where it's at again, which is true, but not in the way that they were thinking of it. It could be that they were totally um, dismissing any other person being active in their lives and just said, no, I'm of Christ. Jesus and me is all I need. And those people that would then forsake even the assembly of the church, that many of those, you've, you've seen them, you've heard about them, you maybe were one at some point. Well, you just didn't, you love Jesus, of course, but his people, nah, nah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on Jesus. I can have church in the forest as I'm hunting the, the deer. Jesus and me, that makes uh, uh, what I'm after. And so this is not the right attitude because it leads toward divisiveness. He says, verse 13, has Christ been divided? No, Christ brings us together. He's, he's broken down, Ephesians 2, broken down the middle wall of partition. We've brought together Jew and Gentile have fellowship. Uh, and, and so we have a cause for unity, not for division or separation. And he gets into a personal example over here in verse 13. Is Paul crucified for you? Let me just think back. One of the, one of the things that Paul was not ever 
not guilty of, but did not participate in his life, and that is being crucified. He was stoned. He was, uh, you know, beaten. He was shipwrecked how many different times, spent days and nights in the open ocean. He went without food, all these different things, but crucifixion, never part of his experience. He was beheaded at the end of his life, according to uh, church history anyway. And so he says, was Paul crucified for you? Because he comes right to the issue. You're making an, an appeal or an affiliation with me, but I'm, I'm just a steward. I'm just a servant pointing you to the cross of Christ. Make sure that your perception, your thinking, your orientation is on Christ, not in a, in a divisive, factious way, but on a real reality. That's, that's your life. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. He's going to write to the Colossian church years later. He says, I wasn't crucified. You don't have life in me. Your, your forgiveness that you have is not based upon my you know, salvific or redemptive work. I'm just a preacher. I'm just the one who presenting this, this gospel to you. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And a couple different occasions, Romans 6 and Colossians 2, he brings the idea of crucifixion and baptism together. He does it here as well. He says, crucifixion and baptism ought to follow because baptism really pictures and even makes concrete or emphasizes the reality. We're in Christ. We have been crucified with him, buried with him in death, and raised up together with Christ, not with Paul. And and some people, and this is going to come a little bit later in chapter 15 about being baptized for the dead. What in the world is he talking about? There's some misunderstanding that the Corinthian church had regarding baptism that somehow just because Paul was the one who performed the baptism, somehow they were making their allegiance to him. No. When we baptize people, it's not in the name of, of the elder so-and-so. and the No, we do it Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the affiliation. That's the identification. That is the profession of loyalty that we inspire or call upon each uh, person in baptism to proclaim. It's not me. It's not the person who performs the baptism. Paul, he says, doesn't, there's, there's no special thing about who does the baptism. It's being baptized in the name of Christ. And then he gives this example, verses 14 and 15. I thank God. And he, this is kind of a... Uh, off the cuff, or it, it, it illustrates, I guess, the ad hoc nature to of, of how Paul is writing this letter. Because he says, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Crispus and Gaius are, Crispus is the leader of the synagogue mentioned back in chapter 18 of Acts. And he says, I, I baptized them because he was uh, one of the early converts. And it could be that Gaius, Gaius is a, a wealthy man in Corinth and he mentions in Romans uh, 16, I think it is, yeah, 16, verse 23, that Gaius is host to me and to the whole church in Corinth. So he was a wealthy person, tradesman, whatever, also baptized by Paul, an early convert. We're going to see a little bit later in chapter 16 of First Corinthians, Stephanus, which is going to be reminded here, also was baptized. He was the early convert. But here we see Paul says, I didn't actually perform the baptism of more than Crispus, Gaius, maybe their households, uh, he's just specifically he says Crispin, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one of you could say you were baptized in my name. That's not what's going on there in baptism. I didn't baptize you in the name of, the, in the name of Paul. I baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, oh, I remember. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know what, whether I baptized neither. If we were writing this letter in our modern 21st century era, we would have just amended, right, gone back and, and, and to verse um, 14 and said, you know, 
I baptize Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. But because he is most likely dictating this letter to somebody who is writing it down, and they're writing it down not, again, on an electronic word processor or, or with pencil, parchment perhaps, or papyrus, and with ink. And so you can't just scratch out or white out. You, you, all these modern things are not there. So as he is saying this thing, oh, yes, Stephanus. And it could be that Stephanus is right here next to, to Paul as he's reciting or, or dictating this letter. And Stephanus said, oh, Paul, you baptized me and all my household. He said, oh, I remember. And so he amends himself in the course of this. What does this illustrate? The, the nature of how the scriptures came to be. It's not so much the writers who were inspired. It is the work that they write. The writings are inspired. You read about that in 2 Timothy 3.16. The word of God is, or all scripture is God breathes or breathed out by God or, or however you want to translate that, that very unique word in 2 Timothy 3.16. But it shows us how about the production of scripture. He says, look, I didn't baptize any other. Verse 17 gives the commentary or the reason why he's glad for that happy act of providence. It just happened. It wasn't like it was a calculated thing. I'm only going to baptize these people so they can you know, have a you know, copyright or, or special patent or special privilege. No, it just didn't work out that way. I baptized them, them, and them. I'm done. Christ did not send me to baptize. Well, what are, you, what are you doing, Paul? Are you saying baptism is not important? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying for his role specifically, he was called to proclaim the gospel to preach the good news, to evangelize people. And he says, and he's now he's kind of stepping into a little bit farther what's going on, the reasons for this division. But again, first, baptism and evangelizing are not separate things that we need to say, well, you're, you're the bapti baptizing people. Uh, we're over here preaching the gospel. No, they go together. Preaching of the gospel, preaching of the cross goes together with baptism. In fact, Jesus said it, right? Make disciples, baptizing them. Teach the gospel, baptize them. We see it in Acts 2. What did the people do? They heard the gospel and they were baptized. We don't want to make a distinction and, and separate baptism from gospel. But Peter, excuse me, Paul is saying it's not worth Other people can baptize. Even Jesus came to preach the kingdom. He wasn't baptizing. His disciples were baptizing. Was well, that a problem? Is Jesus somehow separate? No, he's just saying he can only do so much. Isn't that wonderful that there's delegation? There's that's it's a wonderful, freeing reality. And Paul says, I'm going to focus on that which, which I must do. You know, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And so he goes on and says, I'm going to proclaim the gospel. But now he steps into it a little bit farther, not in wisdom of word, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. He says, I am proclaiming the gospel, not in a clever way, not in a, in a way, literally, it says wisdom of word. Uh, this is the first time of many times he's going to use this idea or concept of wisdom, Sophia in Greek, and of uh, 73 different times in the Greek New Testament, this word family, uh, whether it's uh, thinking wisely or wisdom itself, uh, 73 times in the Greek New Testament, 28 of those times. So a third of these times it's used in 1 Corinthians. And if you don't mind, all but two are in this text of chapters 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians. In other words, wisdom is a key issue. A key kind of a sticking point is one of the reasons behind the divisiveness going on in the church in Corinth, because there's some people that says, well, in order to be accepted in today's society, first century Roman world, we need to have the wisdom of the world. We need to kind of attract, uh, you know, present our truth in the, in the same line as, as Philo or, or some of these other people. Certainly uh, after, because it's Greek, right? After our uh, ancestors uh, um, 
Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, we need to be in that kind of a fashion. We need to present our truth in that. Paul says, no, I, I'm not coming, you, coming to you with, and there are different ways, how many different, a couple dozen different ways, just two words are translated in so many different translations. What is presented here, wisdom of word. Uh, some other translation says big sounding words or clever words or cleverness of speech or eloquent wisdom or fancy rhetoric of my own intellectual arguments you're getting the idea that something's deeper going on here why don't you just preach the gospel well that's what paul says i do i preach the gospel not in this kind of way not with profound words and high sounding ideas not uh, spinning an eloquent intellectual argument uh, rhetorical showboating this idea of how you present the truth is very important to the corinthian people at least certain people in the corinthian church wisdom and eloquence um, wisdom that consists of mere rhetoric or words that sound wise oh that's really profound what he was saying. And Paul says, I didn't come preaching you, preaching to you in a manner of wisdom, uh, preaching to you uh, after the, the pattern or philosophy of the world. I came to preach the cross of Christ so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its power. Maybe you want to understand it that way. This idea of making being made empty has a couple different ideas, but to take away the power or significance of something, we see several different times in these first four chapters, talking about the um, verse 18, the word of the cross is the power of God, Verse uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Uh, chapter 2 talks about the weakness uh, that Paul came in, but speaking the truth of the gospel in the power of God, verse 5. And then again in verse 20 of chapter 4, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So we don't empty the, the word of, of the gospel by coming out, coming or trying to attach ourselves to the power, the, the sophistry, the, the uh, wisdom of the world. We just preach the gospel. And he goes then into the idea, what is the gospel? And why is it foolishness to the world, but it is wisdom to us? Let me just finish with one example of this clear speaking of the gospel and how it saved a certain man um, 150 or so years ago. A young man who was 15 years old at the time. This was uh, early January 1850, and this is his testimony. He says, I had been about five years in the most fearful distress of mind. I thought the sun was blot out of my sky, that I had so sinned against God that there was no hope for me. I knew it was said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, but I did not know how or did not know what it was to believe in Christ. And then he goes on, he says, I sometimes think I might have been darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there were maybe a dozen or 15 people. The minister, the, the professional or whatever, did not come at that, mo that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It's from Isaiah 45 and verse 22. And then he relates some of what the preacher said. It's a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And the text says, Look unto me. Look to Christ. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. And he says, oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Now, when he had, this is interesting how he says, when he had managed to spin about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. He couldn't, he didn't have anything else to say. And he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. 
and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now at this moment, you'll be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. This young man who was troubled, he knew the gospel, but he says, I do not know what it was to believe in Christ, said, I saw at once the way of salvation. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. I thought I could have sprung from the seat in which I sat and have called out, I am forgiven, I am forgiven, a monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. If you hadn't guessed already, that is the testimony of salvation of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, prince of preachers. Wow! But he was saved through the simple, if you don't mind, simplistic preaching of the gospel through an untrained tradesman, whatever he was, a shoemaker, tailor, something of that sort. But it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And Paul says, I don't want to take anything away from the gospel. I don't want to take any power away from that by, by making you know, a better presentation. Just speak the gospel. Proclaim Christ. Celebrate him. And that is salvation. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you have given to us a word which is tremendous, which is so powerful. And we don't want to have that party spirit or divisiveness over any kind of just silly issues that would normally tend to separate us. We want to be united in Christ and have his mind in us. We want to think the same thing. We want to have the same opinion, judgments. And I know we can have opinions on different things and whatever, but on the essential things, the important things of, of the truth of your word, please help us to be united. Please help us to think rightly. Please help us to be conformed to your image. Please help us to be, again, in harmony, in unity as a congregation. We pray for your church worldwide. There's so many issues of divisiveness and disagreements and discord and disharmony. And some are rightly so because there are those who name the name of Christ who aren't in obedience to him and or in obedience to the scripture. And so please help us to have fellowship with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and that celebrate his truth, his proclamation, his gospel. Again, we pray that each soul here would be in a right relationship with you, trusting you wholly, looking to Christ and being saved. We pray this in his name. Amen.